I'm excited to announce that this morning we'll be back in Daniel, the book of Daniel. Seems like it's been a while. It has been. I don't know how many weeks. I didn't count, but it's been a little while since we were there. We did a lot of stuff in between, and we had Christmas and everything else. Uh, but we're going to be back in Daniel this morning and, and stay there for a, a little while. If you'd uh, like to, uh, please take your Bibles and turn to Daniel 5. Daniel chapter 5. Um, that entire chapter will be our text for this morning. So immediately some of you are saying there is no way he'll be able to pull it off. Um, but you know, I, I kept reading that chapter over and over and I kept looking for ways to divide it and section it out and it would have been like, in my mind, taking a movie with a singular plot and theme and dividing it into sections, and then at the end of it all, it probably wouldn't have made sense. Kind of like Pulp Fiction. Makes no sense at all. So, terrible reference, by the way. Um, we're already going there. Uh, but So I, I want to keep to the theme. There's one general theme here. There's one narrative. There's one story. There's one plot, if you will, and so I felt like it would be better to try to deal with it as a whole, and uh, I'm going to attempt to do that this morning. There are, um, there are several things to note uh, before we get into the text. We need to build a little context, uh, maybe a little bridge between where we were before in Daniel 4 and, and now. There's actually a significant span of time between chapters 4 and 5 in terms of the events and chronology or timeline. Not in their authorship. I'm sure that Daniel writ them, just wrote, the, wrote each chapter consecutively, but, um, and I'm not sure if he did that or not, but I think he did. But there, there is a pretty good chunk of time between the events of chapter 4 and the events of chapter 5. And so that's important to note. I'd say about 23 years had passed uh, since Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. And you remember in chapter 4 where he was humiliated and became like a farm animal and you know, he was this high and lofty glorious king. He was filled with pride. He was humiliated and lost his sanity and he went out in the pasture and started grazing for like seven years. Really weird scenario. It was God's way of humbling him and leading him to repentance. And so it's been about 23 years since that happened. Now after a, a reign of 43 years, Nebuchadnezzar, after he reigned for 43 years, seven of which he was insane, he actually died in roughly 562 B.C. Um, and so Daniel doesn't record anything between the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, who's the king that we're going to read about in chapter 5. So there's no detail there, like what happened from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. They were not consecutive, or Belshazzar didn't come right after Nebuchadnezzar. He came 20-some-odd years later, and so Daniel doesn't record, but extra-biblical history kind of fills in the gap, and I think it's important for us to know what's happened before we get to Belshazzar of chapter 5. Um, after Nebuchadnezzar died, the empire, uh, the Babylonian empire, that is, began to decline, and uh, the person that followed after Nebuchadnezzar was, and these are some crazy names that I'm probably not going to pronounce right, I think this one's pretty easy, Amel Marduk, uh, that is Nebuchadnezzar's son. He took uh, the throne after his dad died, and he's referred to as evil, Merodach, in 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30. It's never good when you're referred to as evil. Uh, it's not evil Knievel. It's not evil in a cool way. Uh, he is referred to in, in, in uh, that particular passage because he was an evil, evil man. Uh, he was a terrible, terrible guy. But he basically came in after his dad, and uh, he's also referred to as evil Merodach in Jeremiah uh, 52, 31 through 34. Uh, he did release Jehoiakim. He was that king that was originally captured in Judah when Nebuchadnezzar first entered the city and besieged it and took out the first lot of Israelites during that deportation. So he let Jehoiakim back uh, from prison, and he put him in a privileged position in the Babylonian court. Amal Marduk uh, reigned for only two years. So after Nebuchadnezzar died, his son took over, Amal Marduk, and he only reigned for two years. He was actually assassinated by his brother-in-law. 
and his brother-in-law's name was Negrig Lesser. Negrig Lesser, I think that's how you pronounce it. Jeremiah 39.3 refers to Negrig Lesser, or Negrig Lesser, as uh, Nergal Sherezer. He was an official under Nebuchadnezzar who apparently was involved in helping release Jeremiah. You've heard of Jeremiah, the prophet. He helped to release him from prison. Uh, Negrig Lesser reigned four years until he died. Four years until he died. He was succeeded by his young son, Labashi Marduk, or Labashi Marduk, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce these, and my study guide that I use does not, it gives Greek pronunciation, it doesn't give Hebrew so, or Aramaic, so I'm destroying these names, but Lagashi, Labashi Marduk, he took over, he only reigned for nine months, nine months, he was king over Babylon for nine months, and I thought that was my phone, I was about to slap myself. Um, Because I have that same ringtone. Um, Praise the Lord it wasn't me and somebody else that I can embarrass. Um, Just kidding. We love you. I have no idea where I was. Okay, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. Okay, yes. So he reigned for nine months, right? And he was beaten to death by conspirators. Uh, And then those conspirators, those people who killed him, they didn't like him as king. They appointed another king, uh, Nabonidus. Nabonidus reigned 17 years. So here's the longest reigning king after Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, about 43 years. Now we have this guy that comes in like fourth down the line. Uh, he reigned 17 years until he was defeated by Cyrus, the Medo-Persian emperor. Although Nabonidus was appointed as monarch, he was not related in any way to Nebuchadnezzar. So he uh, didn't actually have rights to the throne. And uh, that fact intimidated him to the point that he tried to figure out a way to get rights to the throne. So he went and married someone in the royal family, uh, either a widow or a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, and that's how he kind of gained the right to the throne. And his wife had a son named Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the king that we're going to look at in chapter 5 here. So there's there's your order. You had... You know, five Babylonian kings after Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's dead, gone, been gone for 25 years or so, and we've had all these kings. Now we have Belshazzar. It's also important to note that the city of Babylon, which was obviously the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, that it was under siege at this time. Uh, During the reign of Belshazzar, he was at war. And uh, the Medo-Persians were literally outside of the city walls trying to get in. So they're fighting and they're trying to penetrate the walls and they've got their siege rams and works and catapults and battering rams and all that stuff and they're hammering the wall and they're trying to get into the city to capture, sack the city, kill Belshazzar, take over the empire or the kingdom, if you will. They're out there at this moment in the narrative trying to do that. And I find that to be very interesting. When you look at chapter 5, it begins with this huge party where everyone's drinking and having a good time and getting drunk. Kind of a weird time to be partying when you're at war and you've got people at your fence trying to break in and, and get in there and kill you. Doesn't make much sense to me. Seems a bit careless, right? Yeah. You've got somebody trying to break into your house. That's not the time to pop the bottle. It's time to grab your nine, you know? And so they're in there partying, having a good time, drinking, getting drunk and all that, and they've got enemies at the gate, if you will, and they are trying to get in. And I think it's careless, but then again, Babylon was encircled by roughly 60 miles of, and I'm talking about Babylon City, it was encircled by roughly 60 miles of wall, 80 feet thick and 320 feet tall. So, (laughs) let them try, drink up. That's the attitude. They were trusting in their walls, if you will, and they had some serious wallage. I don't think anyone was getting through that anytime soon. So, uh, then again, as we read, we will see. So, they're partying and all that. They're at war. Somebody's trying to get through, but those walls are pretty thick and tall, and they're chilling. So, There's your context. There's what's playing out. We have Belshazzar, they're at war, and so on and so forth. And then we kind of engage in chapter 5. So I'll pray. Lord, uh, just 
We pray that this time would be fruitful for us, that we would grow through the Scripture and through the power of the Holy Spirit who applies the Word to us. Pray that there be any man or woman in here who has yet to come to know you. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit and by your grace that they would come to know you. And for those of us who do know you, that we would be made a little bit more like Jesus, that we would be sanctified in this moment. So teach us according to your word. May it not just be fun time or a story time or a lecture or anything like that, but your holy word applied by you, our holy God. And may we be transformed into the image of Christ. Receive all the glory for our attention and notes and learning and growth. We praise you and love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I've done is I've taken this ginormous passage, which I would never attempt to cover, and I'm definitely going to try to today, but I've divided it into seven sections, okay? Seven sections, and, uh, and I'm going to call each section a P. It's going to be, I've got the seven P's or the seven, seven sections entitled with a P. You'll see what I mean, and I think I want to just get right into this. I don't want to mess around. I want to get to number one, and I call this section the provocation. This is the provocation, and we see that in verses one through four, and I'll tell you why I call it the provocation after I read this section. And here, here is the text itself. It says, King, this is verse one, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. That's interesting. Maybe it was a custom to get up in front of everyone and throw them back. I don't know, but he's drinking wine in front of all these people. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines, those are women that he is with regularly, but they're not his wives, they're like his mistresses, might drink from them. So what you have here is you have this high-powered king, and he's drinking wine, and he's got basically his entire cabinet there, all his lords, and he's got his wives, and he's got his, they're not really his wives, but kind of like his wives there, and he's drinking, and he says, man, go get the stuff that my grandfather got off the Judeans years ago. Go fetch those sacred vessels, get the gold and silver vessels. So they're drinking, they're partying, and he says, go get this stuff. And it says, then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So there you go. There's the provocation. And I, and I call this section the provocation because the things that Belshazzar did during this party are what provoked the Lord to anger, thus causing the sequence of events to happen, to unfold. So this is the part where he provokes the Lord with these things that he and, and his people are doing during this party. Really interesting. This particular section of, of Daniel was written in Aramaic. You've got Hebrew and Aramaic, and there's, kind of, there's a switching back and forth between these two languages for various purposes I won't get into. But tasted the wine in Aramaic translates as drunkenness. So this isn't he was doing a wine tasting over at Delicato. You know, I like the Chardonnay. You know, I'm a cabman myself, so. Uh, but this, this is not a wine tasting. Don't get the wrong idea. This isn't what we do when we go to a place, if you like wine or whatever, or if you like beer, you do a beer tasting or something like that. Uh, this, is, this is party time. This is me on Lit Road back in high school on Crawford Road. Anybody party on the Canal Banks back in the day? I'm the only... Dan, thank you, Dan. I, I'm really starting to feel alone. Nobody used to party on the canal banks back in the day in here? There's some people my age here, for crying out loud. No? So where was your party place when you were in high school? It was at the church. <laughs> yeah, so, so this, is, this is straight up partying. This is canal bank. This is back in my heyday. They are partying. They aren't just tasting. Well, uh, this one is a, uh, it's got an apple note to it. No, they are drinking. They are drunk. They are sauced. They're hammered. They're pounded. They're, they're pounding this stuff. They're drunk. So he's drunk 
when he calls for these vessels to be brought in so that they can use them. And to me, I'm just reminded of, of, of how wine, it says in a proverb, is a mocker. You know, if you drink too much wine, you start mocking. You know, you, know, you, get, you lose your rational mindset. You know, that's, I think, one of the reasons why drunkenness is prohibited because it, leads, it can lead even God's people to do really stupid things. And I think here, Belshazzar is not one of God's people. He's an outsider, but here's a classic example of how someone drank too much wine and came up with a really stupid idea. Fetch the gold and silver vessels. <laughs> you know, I mean, the guy's hammered. He's like a pirate. That sounded like a pirate. And, and I would call this, and I know Carl and I have called it this before, we call it cooler courage. Get a couple of beers in you, all of a sudden you're rocky. I tried this on McHenry at Taco Bell about 30 years ago, got dropped like a bad habit. Hey, you want, you know, you just, you get a little booze in you and all of a sudden, you know, hey, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to promote drunkenness or anything here, but I, I was like, uh, the first phase of my drunkenness when I used to party back in the day was happiness and elation. And then there was a point where I would start getting mad. Like, you know, I don't know if it was just that, you know, the 40th beer, 41st beer, I don't know, because I used to drink a lot. Keystone, by the way, because uh, you were on a budget when you were 21, and you lived in Modesto, and you worked at Long John's, okay? It's my whole history. I'm just going to leave now. Um, but, you know, you, you, you put back those cervezas, or some people drink hard liquor, and there's a point where, you know, it just, you kind of go blind. And, um, and, and this is a moment here where, you know, his rational functions and all of those things are gone. I know that, how that feels. I've experienced that, woken up on a yard or two. He's there. He's there, and he's got this cooler courage, and he thinks he's a tough guy, and he's got that booze spinning in him, and he's ready to rock and roll. And uh, the booze made him think he was tough. And what he's actually doing here by calling for the vessels is he's testing the Lord. He's testing the God of the Jews. He's testing the Most High God, whom he's familiar with. Keep in mind that he's got hundreds of thousands of of Jews, if not hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of Jews in his kingdom who have been deported there. He knows who they are. He knows who their God is. He doesn't believe, but he knows who they are. And he's got this cooler courage. And this is a test. This is like, ah, you know what? I'm going to put your phony baloney God to the test. That's what he's doing here. When Belshazzar began to drink from the golden vessels, the silver vessels, whatever, he was actually mocking and defying the Lord, right? There's that proverb, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler. He's had too much to drink, and he brings these things in because he's got cooler courage, and he wants to show off to all his people and defame and, you know, defy the true God. And then here's the thing, man. Not only does he, does he start drinking from these vessels, which are, in a sense, sacred, and we know that, that, that the true God let those vessels be taken out of Jerusalem and taken to Babylon and put in a different temple. We understand that, but they're still set apart and holy, and they belong to the Lord, and they're for His use and worship alone. But not only is He sort of um, kind of like defying or anything like that or, or challenging the Lord, he, he, he now begins to praise His own gods as He's drinking from them. And that's a declaration of war. It's one thing to use something that doesn't belong to you, that's been set apart for someone else's use or someone else's glory, but then to take those things and to start, this is to the God of silver, this is to the God of gold, this is to the God of bronze, this is to the God of, of stone or iron or whatever, and that's what he's doing now. So it's not just about using them, it's also about mocking, defying, and declaring war on the one true God. It's like he's tempting the Lord by using them and with his idolatry. And he's really saying in his heart, because he's got that cooler courage, what are you going to do about it? You ain't going to do nothing, man. I dare you to try something, is what he's saying here to God. You're not so tough, God of the Jews. So he's not only testing the Lord, but he's calling the Lord out to a fight is what he's doing. And I would say at this point in the narrative, but more specifically at the party, maybe that cooler courage was playing into it, but this is that moment in Belshazzar's life when his pride reached 
Nebuchadnezzar level. Right? He's just filled with with pride and self-focus and self-glory and not to mention booze, which causes people to do really stupid things. I know. Right? His pride is just, it's peaked, it's maxed, it's at the pinnacle. His power, his, his glory, and you know what? He's got enemies chiseling, chiseling away at those 80-foot thick, 320-foot tall walls. His walls, his pride, his glory, all that. I mean, all of that's just building up his pride and, and giving him a sense of invincibility and superiority. And we know what happened with Nebuchadnezzar when his pride reached the top. You remember he was walking on his balcony looking out over the city and, and it was even prophesied, something's going to happen to you because of your pride. Oh, I don't want to listen to you. And he's walking on the balcony looking over a city and just gushing with self-love and envy and pride and the Lord zaps him and takes away his sanity and the next thing you know, he's you know, like a cow grazing in a field. Well... A similar thing happens in our text, but Belshazzar isn't afforded the same grace and mercy. <laughs> it's never, never, ever wise to put the Lord to the test. Never, never. Uh, and I think so much of what happened yesterday with all these marches and everything were basically that. And, it, and it's just a, it, a mystery to me as to because I know how I think and how I feel and what I would do in any instance, and this is precisely why I'm not God, because it wouldn't be good for, for many people. But I'm just astonished at the blatant disrespect for the Creator in all things. It's just amazing. I, I'm, I'm blown away by my own level of disrespect towards Him, even as His child at times, and, and how I was before I was saved, which was much worse. So he's putting the Lord to the test. He thinks he's superior. He thinks he's invincible. He's got all that pride, all that self-envy and love. He's got a sense of invincibility, but he's really nothing more than a drunken fool. So number two, that was the provocation. That's what set these things in in motion. Now we have the panic. The panic, there's the second P, verses 5 through 9. Immediately, this is insane. This is like tales from the crypt action going on here. I don't even know what this looked like, but this freaked me out when I read it. So they're partying and doing this, and they're drinking from the vessels, and they're basically blaspheming God and praising these idols. And immediately, the fingers, just, just the fingers, you know? Imagine the fingers, not my whole stuff here, just the fingers, these fingers appear. The fingers of a human hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Look at the details. It was right here in his palace. It wasn't, any, it wasn't some random spot. It was over here opposite side of the lampstand. And it was where Belshazzar, as he's doing what he's doing, was able to notice it. And it says, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. So he sees this hand appear, and he sees it scrolling and writing on the plaster. And it says, then the king's color changed. (laughs) What do you think that means? You know, you think it was the wine he turned yellow? You think he was scared? Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. He was definitely trying to figure out what's going on. His limbs gave way, right? His limbs gave way, and his knees started knocking together. You've seen the cartoons, right? When somebody gets scared, the knees start tapping together. That's what he's doing. He's like a cartoon character here. The king called loudly. So he's freaking out. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Okay, so that's his leadership team. Those are his wise men. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in. Of course, they filed into there very quickly. Jim, you're about to get rich if you can decipher what this is. They're like, wow, this is the greatest come up of all time. It's like hitting the lottery. They fly into the room. But they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Where have we read this before in the previous chapters? 
Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed. So this isn't that his color reset, it got worse. If it was yellow, now it was green. His color began to change even more. And his lords were perplexed. Okay, so there's the panic. This hand appears, it writes something. He doesn't know what it means, but he knows it can't be good because he knows what's going on. Maybe his conscience isn't completely seared, but something's happening here while we're doing this. And it didn't happen before we got the vessels and we started praising our own God. So he's freaking out. He calls people up to try to figure out what it is. Nobody can figure out what's going on. And I'd just like to note that it was at the point where Belshazzar's debauchery and disrespect of the Lord reached its highest point that the fingers appeared and began to write on the wall. It's interesting because this guy ruled for a number of years and yet nothing like this had ever happened before. And I think that we can blame that on the long-suffering, patient mind and heart of God who allows sinners to do so much. Now, here's this, this critical moment where this guy's pride reaches its top and his disrespect for the Lord reaches the top and God's patience have run out. And he sends the fingers. He sends the fingers. Interesting. Now, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 all feature various kinds of supernatural miracles or events. Chapter 1, we see the preservation of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they ate only vegetables for a while. In other words, they didn't have any protein, and your body needs protein. It doesn't mean you have to eat tri-tip every day. Your triglycerides will explode, I know. I basically had high uh, cholesterol like seven months ago. Went to the doctor. He said, you have high cholesterol. I didn't know I had high cholesterol. He tells me you got high cholesterol. Your triglycerides are like 400. So he says, you need to exercise. You need to lose a little weight. You need to be a little bit more mindful of what you eat, and you need to take this medicine. Did all of that. Didn't watch what I should eat as much as I should have, but I did. More so than I was beforehand. So I go get retested. I'm 100 points higher than I was. Can't win. I have no idea why I just told you that story. So they ate vegetables only. The Lord preserved their bodies. Their physiques looked better than everyone else around them when they were only eating broccoli and these sorts of things. So there's the miracle in chapter 1. Chapter 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? That supernatural dream that came to him that illustrated some things. Chapter 3, you have the fiery furnace. Remember that? How those guys were thrown into the furnace and they were preserved, not killed, and there was a fourth man in there, the Lord Jesus. Chapter 4, and in chapter 4, what miracle do we see there? I would say the instant insanity of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had all of his faculties, and then he was instantly made insane, went out and became cow out in the pasture. Those are the miracles of those chapters, and I'm sure there's more. But here in chapter 5, and there's, a, there's like a miracle in every chapter, we have the fingers that write on the wall. Interesting fact. Now, this scene frightened Belshazzar so badly, as I pointed to already, that his facial color changed. And there were a couple of stages of that. At first, he probably became yellow. He was scared out of his wits, knees knocking and all that. And then when nobody could decipher what the message was, he, his fear increased a whole other level and his skin tone changed again. I mean, what I would say here is that at this point in the narrative, he is in a full-blown panic. He is wigging out, freaking out, totally horrified. And, of course, we read that the king summoned his leadership team, the wise men of Babylon, and vowed to reward them if they could interpret the writing. But as it was in the days of Nebuchadnezzar with his wise men, and some of these guys could be the same wise men, we don't know for sure, they, like Nebuchadnezzar's men, were unable to interpret the writing and to perform the task. Um, and I would say that uh, this writing, I don't think it was Aramaic. They would have known what it was. It wasn't Hebrew. They would have known if it was Chaldee. They would have known what it was. It wasn't any of those known languages. This was something else. But as it was before, they were not able to perform the task. And that just started to freak everyone out. So that's the panic. Number three, the proposal, verses 10 through 12. So as this is playing out, the queen is in another room and she overhears what's going on. And maybe 
his knees were clacking together so loud. She's saying, that's an interesting sound. Sounds like a mamba line, you know. Who knows what she was thinking, but she's in another room and she hears the commotion over here and people freaking out. It says, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. She left where she was, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, and this is something that you would say to a king in those days, O king, live forever. Just because you're queen doesn't mean that you don't get to acknowledge the king in this way. O king, live forever. And then she says this, she's trying to comfort him, let not your thoughts alarm you or change your color. (laughs) you're freaking out. And then she says this, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, and this is his grandfather, uh, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him, in this particular guy. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your grandfather, uh, that king made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this man, a.k.a. Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. It's a different name than Belshazzar the king, a little different. Now, and she suggests this. Here's the proposal. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So the queen comes in, tries to chill out her husband, and by God's providence and sovereignty, she calls to her memory. She remembers Daniel, this character named Daniel, this guy named Daniel, this Judean, uh, this exile that's in the kingdom. She remembers who he is, and she remembers his ability, and she remembers how Nebuchadnezzar had appointed him to be the chief over all of the wise men, how he could you know, solve dreams and riddles and solve problems in these things. She remembers Daniel, and she remembers how Daniel was associated with Nebuchadnezzar and how much of an asset he was. And she believed, at least it seems to apply in the text, she believed that Daniel possessed the spirit of the holy gods. Uh, That would be, uh, we would translate that as the Holy Spirit, but we need to understand that's a temporary anointing because this is Old Covenant, not under the New Covenant, where the Holy Spirit comes, makes, his, uh, and makes your home, your heart, His abode permanently. This was at a temporary anointing. But she recognized that, man, there's something different about this guy. He's got the spirit of the holy gods. That was their way of uh, maybe describing what Daniel had. Or she even refers to the spirit that he had as an excellent spirit. And then, as I said, she proposed that he be located, he be found and brought before the king. So that's the proposal. And then we have, number four, the prophet. The prophet, verses 13 through 17. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. So they went and found him. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. He tells them, hey, I know who you are. I've heard of you. The queen's told me about you. I've heard of you, who you are, through maybe some other people and all that. You're pretty well known and all that. You've got these abilities. Well, my team couldn't pull it off. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And then it says in 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless... I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So we see Daniel enter the banquet hall and and Belshazzar acknowledges his anointing and acknowledges his prophetic abilities, if you will. And he begins to inform him that the wise men of Babylon couldn't do it. And he says, man, go for it if you can do it. He offered him a reward if he could pull it off, a purple robe, What does purple signify or represent in Scripture? Royalty. That's the color of royalty. A gold chain. What is gold? 
signify or represent in Scripture? Wealth does the same thing today. And he offered to make him third ruler in the kingdom, which signifies what? Power. So, I will give you uh, a position of royalty. I will give you vast wealth. And I will give you power. Now, what's interesting to me is that Daniel was obviously with Belshazzar. He was not in the same position with Belshazzar that he was with Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe throughout that 23 or 25 years or so, he kind of lost his position. I don't know. Uh, but here, Belshazzar is offering him kind of the same things that, that Nebuchadnezzar offered him so many years ago. Daniel agreed uh, to interpret the writing for the king, but he declined the gifts. And he told the king to give those gifts and those rewards to someone else. Obviously, someone who didn't have the ability, but Daniel was not interested in those things. And I think it's just a further illustration of Daniel's character, his integrity, and maybe his sold-outness, if that were such a word, to the true God. In other words, Daniel was not into it for the money. Many a man in the church today could learn from Daniel's example because they seem to be in it for the money. Pretty sad. So that's the prophet. The prophet enters the scene. That is Daniel. Five, we have the parallel, verses 18 through 23. Now, this is a larger section, and I'll read it, and then I'll describe it. Here's what Daniel says. This is how he begins his interpretation. He starts off by doing this. You all with me so far? I mean, I feel like it's cognizant download or whatever, a cognitive download. It's just like cognitive dump here. It's a lot of information, right? As long as you guys are awake, you okay there? Yeah, you're good? Everyone's good? You taking notes? Ian, what are you laughing at? He's all, it's, uh, it's my dad. That's what I'm laughing at. <laughs> Laugh at your father. Uh, anyways, uh, now he's going, oh, great, everyone's thinking of me. Well, everyone knows you. All right, the parallel. Here we go. Verses 18 through 23. Here's how Daniel starts it. O king, the most high God. So he addresses the king. He goes right to his God. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. It's amazing. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. So he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar and how he rose to power and God's blessings and those things on his life and his power and all that. But when his heart, listen to this, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. Those are his people in his kingdom. And his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. Hee-haw. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Now listen to this. So what he does is he starts by giving him a history lesson. He tells him what happened in Nebuchadnezzar beforehand. Here's who he was. Here's how he rose up in pride. He didn't fight that. He became so prideful and God brought him low. So he gives him a history lesson. Now listen. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. So what he's saying is that you knew about Nebuchadnezzar. You knew about what happened to him. You knew about his rise to fame and prominence. You knew about his pride. You knew about his humiliation. And you knew about him being a farm animal for seven years until he humbled himself and repented. You knew. You knew exactly what happened with him. Though you knew all this, but instead, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And here we go. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines 
have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or know. But you did not honor the God who holds in His hand your life and all your ways. So, in verses 18 through 21, Daniel gave Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar a history lesson where he described Nebuchadnezzar's greatness, glory, majesty, pride, humiliation, insanity, downfall, and restoration after he repented. In verse 22, he paralleled, right? Here's the parallel. He paralleled Belshazzar with Nebuchadnezzar. He basically said to him, in my paraphrase, you've done the same thing as your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Your pride has caused you, just as it did with him, your pride has caused you to lift yourself up against the Lord. Even worse, despite the fact that you knew better than to do that. Despite the fact that you saw his example, that you know what happened with him, you chose to do that anyways. That's what he tells Belshazzar. Not only does he do that, and he hasn't even given the interpretation. He's giving uh, basically the reason why the fingers came in the first place, the rationale for it. And not only did he give him a history lesson and then parallel it to him. Listen to what he does here. He, he actually calls him out and identifies his sins. And I'm sure that there were people standing there listening. You and your lords and your wives and your concubines, my paraphrase, drank from sacred vessels that you should not have drank from. And all of you, while you were doing this, praised the idols of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But you never, you never once praise the God who holds your life and all your ways in his hands. That's a rebuke from Daniel. Daniel, let me tell you, this is just another example of how bold he is or was standing before a king who literally held Daniel's life or death in his hands. And to say something like this to the king is astonishing to me. The boldness is incredible. And that's the Holy Spirit filled saint there who has that kind of boldness who can pull that off who has that confidence in God who can do that even if they're facing death and that's what he's doing but he doesn't just give him a history lesson history lesson and parallel it to him he rebukes him and says man you drank from these things and you praised your gods and you never praised the true God who owns the vessels and your life man incredible incredible That is the parallel. Now, we look at the prediction in uh, number six, the prediction in verses 24 through 29. And we're making pretty good time. The prediction, verses 24 through 29. History lesson's done. You've done the same thing. Here we go. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. Okay, here's the prediction. Here's what's going to happen. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mine, Mine, Tekel, and Parson. That's, as far as I can tell, not Aramaic, or it's an Aramaic equivalent of whatever was written there. Mine, Mine. It's almost like Mine, Mine, Mine. Mine, Mine, Tekel, and Parson. And he says, this is the interpretation of those words. This is the interpretation of what those words mean. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tackle, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And 28, Perez, which is uh, the equivalent to Parson. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, it says in 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So let's just take a moment to break down the inscription again. And, and Daniel, it's, almost, it's like a self-teaching text. He tells you what the things mean. Mine. It basically means numbered, or in the vernacular, your number is up. Okay? So M-E-N-E means 
Your number is up. Have you ever heard a phrase like that? Your number's up, pal. Have you ever said that to someone? Hopefully not. Daniel told Belshazzar that God, who numbers all kingdoms, he said, your kingdom is finished. That's what he says here. And to make sure that Belshazzar understood it, God said it twice, didn't he? Mine, mine. Your number is up. Your kingdom is finished. That's it. My patience have run out with you. It's over. That's what he's telling him through Mene. That's what the hand inscribed. Tekel has a, a double meaning. Uh, to be weighed and to be found to light. In those days, people would weigh things by putting a standard of weight on one side of the scale and the commodity being weighed on the other. In effect, Daniel told Belshazzar that he had been weighed by God's standard and came up short. He was too light in his moral value and spiritual virtue. That's how we should look at Tekel. You don't have what I need as a ruler. You're too light morally and you're too light spiritually. You're not qualified to do this is in essence what God is saying to him. You're too light. You've been weighed and it's, it's off. You're off. Parson or the equivalent Perez. It's not a last name. Mario Perez or something. Perez means the same thing as parson. And what it means is, is to divide or to break, indicating that the Babylonian Empire would be conquered and divided by the Medo-Persians, the Medes and the Persians who combined their empires. So the literal translation of God's message through the fingers here is numbered, numbered, too light, divided. That's how it's translated. It was God's prophecy that Belshazzar's kingdom would be destroyed because it was lacking in moral and spiritual value. It did not meet God's standard. And at this point, I would like to say that I think it's the combination, the lack of morality and the lack of spirituality that is the demise of every earthly kingdom. A kingdom may start out and, and, and be somewhat spiritual and, and somewhat moral. America, America certainly started out that way, I would say. It wasn't perfect by any means. But, but hasn't there been a, a decay of our moral values in this country? What did we see yesterday on display? We're fighting for abortion. That's what we saw yesterday. Who fights for that? I would say that just as a rule of thumb, biblically speaking, the downfall of any kingdom or any nation is its decrease in morality and decrease in spirituality. At some point, a nation can get to where God is like, you're completely useless to me, and now you're gone. And that's exactly what's playing out here. That's exactly what we see in the text. You're the ruler, and you represent all of these people, and, and you, you've been weighed, and you lack in moral character, character, and you lack spiritually. You're not knit to me. You don't honor me. You don't worship me. I have no use for you. It's like now this kingdom and this nation is irredeemable. My patience have run out. It's over. Now, if you just do a study of history, and this is studying history, studying Daniel is studying history. Every great nation who has fallen, Rome and everyone, has fallen by the same token. Moral decay, spiritual decay, and at some point, that's it. Roman Empire is one of the greatest empires of all time. Gone. Because of this, because of this downgrade. That's how God judges a nation, basically. That's how he measures. He looks for spiritual vitality and moral integrity. And when those people in that nation have forsaken those things and, and, and kind of do like the Israelites did at the time of judges and just kind of pursued their own ways and did what felt good and completely disregarded God and took the sacred vessels and partied from them and don't give a crud about God and his holiness or the fact that he gives them breath... God's just, his patience. I mean, it, here's an illustration of how God's patience can actually run out. How they can be like an hourglass. And once the sand hits the bottom, that's it. 
And we like to think of God in terms of just endless grace and all of that. And as God's people, if you're a Christian, you have that. You don't have to worry about his patience running out for you. But I think so many take it for granted. He's just, he's just boundless in his grace and mercy, and he's not going to judge them. He's, not, he's just long-suffering, and we take his patience for granted. And we see in the text that there comes a time where God's done and had enough, and he destroys with such violence and fire, and there's no going back. And, 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 and I'll tell you, at this stage in the narrative, Belshazzar and his entire kingdom are on the precipice of total and absolute destruction. I think it's interesting, too, that Belshazzar, after hearing the decree, the prediction, if you will, he still rewards the messenger. I'd have been like, get the heck out of here. I'm not giving you jack. You don't talk to me like that. And, and I think that he did it maybe for one of two reasons, that he wanted to honor the word, because it was important for them to honor whatever edict or whatever they did. It could have been that. But I think it had more to do with, you're stupid. Get out of my sight. Take your rewards and go. I don't think he, you know, I don't think he took what Daniel was saying serious. I'm not sure if he could. Remember, his pride had reached its pinnacle. He was filled with wine. Have you ever tried to <laughs> debate or reason with someone who's drunk? They're boneless. I mean, you can't even talk to somebody who's sauced like that. I don't think he took Daniel's word seriously. I mean, give him his stuff. And then in number seven, we have the punishment. The seventh P. Verses 30 through 31. This is incredible. I'm thinking, okay, before I read this part, obviously it's a prediction. We know that God's 100% accurate on his predictions, but... Maybe he gave the guy some more time to ponder. He certainly gave Nebuchadnezzar about you know, 38 years or so to figure things out. Maybe he'll afford Belshazzar the same grace or mercy or patience, if you will. And what does it say in verse 30? That very, underline that word, that very, underline that very, that very night. Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. 31, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The punishment came on the night of the party. They're partying, having a good old time. They call for the vessels. They're doing what they're doing. The finger's right. Daniel is summoned. He comes in, gives them a history lesson, rebukes them. Here's what you did gives them a prediction, and, and within a few hours or so, the punishment comes full force. Didn't come six months later, didn't come years later. There was no period of ponder or repentance. That was it. The Medo-Persians, and how did it come? It came in the shape of the Medo-Persians breaking through an 80-foot wall. A 320-foot-tall a wall. Somehow, they got in to that place. While they're sitting there partying, thinking, oh, we're untouchable, they get in, probably start massacring people. It's going on outside of the banquet hall. They enter the city. They're slaughtering. They get into the banqueting hall because I think that he was in a drunken stupor in there sitting with his goblet, probably singing to himself. And the Medo-Persians... Medes in particular here, Darius, whoever found the drunken Belshazzar defenseless and slewed him, killed him. Just put him, to, put him to the sword right there on the spot. Wasted him. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's image in chapter 2? What did the head of gold represent? The kingdom of Babylon? What we see here in verse 30 isn't just Belshazzar losing his life. What we see here is the golden head being destroyed. We see the end of the kingdom of Babylon, which was probably one of the greatest kingdoms ever up to that point. It's not just Belshazzar who was killed. It's the end of Babylonia as we know it. The kingdom fell that very night. 
it was over. The Chaldean Empire, the greatest empire of that day, gone, done. And in verse 31, we see the rise of the next kingdom, right? Thinking again of that that great image in that dream that he had. We see the next kingdom, the chest and arms of silver, Medo-Persia. That's the next kingdom in that statue that he dreamed about, that golden head, Babylon gone, decapitated, head destroyed. Now we have the silver shoulders and arms. Medo-Persia now rises to power. They take over this and make it part of their kingdom, and their empire now is more vast than Babylon ever was. So Belshazzar and Babylonia were out, and Darius and the Medo-Persians were in. And he included a neat little detail. Darius was 62 years old when basically he had Belshazzar killed when he conquered Babylonia and rose to the highest level of his kingly career, if you will. That's chapter 5. What application can we draw from this text? I think that we can draw any number of things. What we see here is a pattern, and that's we can see the rise and fall of nations as related to uh, spiritual vitality and moral integrity. You can draw that, and it shows how God thinks and operates and functions and, and what he measures. I think that we could, um, we could easily draw that from it. We could draw the whole pride angle from it, that pride literally does, as Scripture says, leads to a fall. And in this case, it's not just that you who were filled with pride lost your job or whatever, which is tragic and horrible and tough, and hopefully we repent if that happens, but this is the implications of this are way vast compared to losing your job. This has lost his life, burning in hell, entire kingdom destroyed. Pride is easily the most lethal of all sin. And the reason I say that is because it is the foundation, really, for all sin. Our human nature is, but... Pride is the under-sin of all other sin. And what you saw yesterday with these marches, and I'm not saying that there couldn't be some good that comes out of some of it in terms of helping people see things the way that they are or whatever, okay? I don't want to discredit all that, that, that people do and their entire motive and all that, but what I saw yesterday with especially these, this women's march in, in Chicago with Madonna saying crazy things and Ashley Judd saying crazy things, what I saw was a group of people who have reached the highest levels of self-worship and pride. And someone said, uh, because one of our loved ones here had put a post up and, and just said, I wonder how all of the babies would feel about this event that have been slaughtered and aborted. Great point. And believe me, if you write something like that on Facebook and you have more than two friends, you're going to take some heat. And she took a lot of heat. But at the end of it, all that was was an abortion rally. That's all it was. And how do I know that to be true? First of all, there are always abortion rallies when it comes to women's rights, almost every time. Secondly, I know it to be true because there was another group that was just like them that was pro-life that was excluded from the rally. Oh, you can't be a part of it. You You don't believe in a woman's right to choose. And what that tells me is that that was an abortion rally. Abortion's a horrible, horrible sin. It's a terrible thing. It's murder. There's no other way to describe it, but what drives it? Pride, self-worship. Nobody's going to tell me what I can or can't do with my body because I am a little G God. Nobody's going to strip me of that. And we see pride in, in, I see pride when I look in the mirror. I, I can see it in myself when I stop and think about myself and my tendencies and what I do. It just, it's everywhere. And when you live in a country that boasts about it and tells you to have it and tells you that you are what are most important, that you are God, essentially, pride destroys every person who's prideful. It is the end of anyone who's prideful. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we could easily go with how nations rise and fall, we could easily go with, man, I better stay away from pride. I better check myself before I wreck myself because God deals with it. And don't, don't think that God doesn't deal with pride with his own children too. He does, you know, he does. Does he pull a Belshazzar on us? I don't know. He can do whatever he wants to do. Sometimes I think he takes his children home sooner than 
We'd like to go because we're mixed up in some stuff. Maybe that's better for us. Maybe we'll just stop sinning on this side and we can go be perfect with him. That's certainly not how your loved ones are going to be thinking about it when they lose you. God, it says in Hebrews 10, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And, 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 and he deserves our respect as his children. And so we should not dabble with or play in pride, but that's not where I want to go. The thing that caught my attention was the golden vessels and the illicit use of them and how that offended God. And you might think, well, I don't think the use of those vessels, I don't think they really matter. No, I think it was tied to God's, God being offended here. The illicit use of them, the utter disrespect of what they symbolized, and then <laughs> worse than that, praising false gods while you're doing it, that antagonistic attitude and mindset against God, it was horrible. And I think that as Christians, if you're a Christian, I think that we are like those golden vessels in some ways. We belong to God and have been set apart for His glory alone. That's who we are as Christians. You know, we're, we're, we, don't, we don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to false gods. We don't belong to this world. We don't belong to this country. Guess what, folks? We don't belong to the Democratic or the Democrat or the Republican Party or if you're an independent or whatever you are. You don't, you don't belong to any of that. If you're a Christian, you belong to God and Him alone. You're His. And to be owned by Him is, is, is the greatest blessing and privilege ever. We belong to Him. And this is why I had Dan read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. I love that Dan came to me beforehand and he wanted to make sure that I was right in my thinking. I've read Daniel 5 several times and I'm not sure why you're going to that text. It's great to to have a conversation like that with an elder. And I think now he knows. And that text puts it so plainly. Do you not know? This is Paul speaking to believers, not Belshazzar's. Do you not know? It, it, it's as if these Corinthian believers don't understand who they are or who they belong to. And before this, he talks about sexual immorality. Stay away from it. Don't give your body over to those things. And don't give your body over to that fleshly sin in these things. And then he gets to this point where he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And he says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And then he says, So glorify God with your body. You see, when we give ourselves over to sin, when we give ourselves over to the desires of the flesh, we are not living as holy. We are not fulfilling our purpose, which is to glorify God. But the truth is, is that God is zealous for His glory. And He is jealous for His people. And every time we willfully engage in anything sinful, and I know it's, it's seemingly impossible not to at times, I get it, but every time we do it, it's like we're one of those vessels being used for the wrong use. That's what we become like. And, and, and it, it, it ultimately offends our Father. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves him when we become, become filled with pride and self-actualized and self-focused and self-determined. And, and I'm just, it's just all about me. It grieves him when we give in to the idol of self. And I know it's hard truth. I, I know we all struggle. But as I said, it's, it's good for us to hear, especially at the beginning of the year where Christians tend to ponder their commitment to the Lord. And I would say by grace, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, let's commit ourselves to holiness. I'll tell you, one of the things that's becoming more and more absent in the church today is holiness. You know, it, I, I don't know what happened. Maybe it's just the wrong understanding of God's grace. 
that somehow it's just okay for us to engage in sin and we're going to be covered. And, you know, I got my little license in my wallet. It says, forgiven by grace, I can sin. Man, if any of us feel that way, I don't think we've been made new by the Holy Spirit. We are to hate sin. And I think that the more we engage in sin, the more we like it and the more prone we become to it. And I tell you what, one of the things that that needs to mark out the church in this day and age where you've got these marches and all this stuff going on is holiness. We need to be a church of holiness and do our best to walk in holiness and to bring God glory in all things. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But I think that we can grow in it proportionally in the power of the Holy Spirit that you can become more and more good at battling and fighting off temptation and sin and shine brighter and brighter in this culture and community that needs a holy church. It doesn't need a church that looks like the world. It doesn't. 